Amen. Well, will you turn with me in your Bibles this morning? The Gospel according to Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament. Matthew, uh, we are nearing the end of that book, Matthew chapter 27 today. And we will be reading verses 55 through 66 together. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word? Matthew 27, verses 55 through 66. This is the word of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead." And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Uh, Thus ends the reading of God's word. Uh, The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. There is a, a, a document that sits permanently on my laptop, desktop, laptop, desktop, on the desktop of my laptop. And this document is entitled very simply, If I Should Die. It's a document that contains some helpful information and some instructions that will be helpful to my wife, Marianne, and to our boys in the event of my death. None of us knows the hour of our death, but one thing is certain, that unless the Lord should return, each and every one of us in this room will have to face that dark hour. And so as far as it is within our power, I think it's good for us to, to think about making preparations in advance to helping our loved ones prepare 
for the hour of our death, just like Jesus in the days leading up to his death was seeking to help his disciples prepare for that coming hour. But you know, in spite of whatever preparations we might make and however thorough we might be, our loved ones are still going to have to walk through that valley of the shadow of death without us. And one of the more difficult decisions uh, attending the death of a loved one, and especially when that death is unexpected, is very simply this question. What do I do with their body? What do I do with their body? Who is going to be charged with attending to that body? Who will treat the corpse of my husband or my wife or my child with the kind of dignity and respect that we desire for them? And then where will they be buried? What sort of coffin or urn will be purchased? Who is going to preside over their internment? And part of the difficulty of it is, of course, that all of these decisions need to be made in the midst of your deepest grief and loss. Who is going to make these decisions for Jesus? as he hangs there on the cross. Who is going to attend to his body? Who is going to preside over where he will be laid and his internment? Those are the questions that are before us today in this passage of Scripture. And so as we consider uh, these questions before us, I want us to consider three things about this burial of Christ three things that correspond to the three groups of people who are here and involved at the tomb of Jesus. And so as we look at this passage together, I I want you to see three things about this tomb. First, that it's a grieved tomb. As we consider the steadfast love and loyalty of these women who are with Jesus in death. Secondly, I want you to see that it's not only a grieved tomb, it's a gifted tomb. As we consider the courage and the preparations of Joseph of Arimathea as he gives his own new tomb to Jesus for his burial. And then third and finally, I want us to see that this is a guarded tomb. As we consider the hatred and the hostility of the religious leaders... It's a grieved tomb, it's a gifted tomb, and it's a guarded tomb. Uh, First, it's a grieved tomb. Matthew tells us that as Jesus died, there were also many women there looking on from a distance. And he tells us that these women were those who had followed Jesus from Galilee and who had been ministering to him. Now, it is a long journey from Galilee in the north of Israel to Jerusalem in the south of Israel. But these women had been with him every step of the way. And what had they been doing for him? They had been ministering to his needs in life. They were with him in life 
and now they are with him in the hour of his death, prepared to minister to his needs once again. But what could they do? Really, what could they do? They must have felt powerless. Already, as women, they felt powerless in their culture. They were not allowed to speak at his trial. They had no influence over the crowds. They certainly were not going to overpower the guards. There was virtually nothing that they could do except be there. And that's not nothing. When everyone else had fled, when all of his disciples who promised to be there to the end, while all of them were hiding in fear, they had stayed. They stood as witnesses to his death. They stood and watched in grief and pain as their Lord, as their Savior, was tortured and then murdered. The Bible names three of them, Mary Magdalene, whom Luke tells us had been set free from seven demons, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, which could be a reference to Jesus' own mother, because we learned earlier in Matthew's gospel that at least two of his brothers were named James and Joseph, but these are common names. Most scholars believe that this is actually a reference to Mary the mother of Clopas, who was actually the aunt of Jesus. And then, of course, there's Mary, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, the one who had asked if her two sons might sit on his right hand and on his left when he entered into his kingdom. The name Mary, Miriam, was a very common name. But we can only imagine that these women who had been so attentive to him in death and in life desired Nothing more than to attend to him now. We know from Mark and Luke's gospel that these are the same women who are going to prepare spices to bring to his tomb to anoint his body. But at this moment, his body is still hanging on that cross. It's still limp and lifeless. They know of no tomb. They they do not know of any burial plot. Jesus was far from home. There were no arrangements made. There was nothing. What would become of his body? That bruised and beaten body that had been torn to pieces, that was pierced and punished, that body that was cursed and crushed, and yet had been sustained for three hours, enduring the full measure of the wrath of God against sin. What would become of that blessed body of Jesus. They must have feared the worst. What became of most bodies of the victims that were crucified? The Romans did not really care what happened to the corpses of the crucified. Ordinarily, they were in no hurry to take them down from the cross. Ordinarily, they would leave them hanging to decompose right there, to be eaten by the birds, to serve as a warning to other criminals. It's a pretty disgusting and harrowing thought. But because in this case there was a Jewish feast at hand, and because the law prohibited that bodies should be hanging overnight, 
his body was removed. In which case, it would ordinarily either be buried in some unknown grave with other criminals, or it would often simply be thrown into the trash heap to be eaten by dogs and eventually burned with all of the other refuse. And so their grief must have been compounded by their fears that if he was treated this way in life, how would he be treated in death? But what they did not know was that although they were unprepared for this moment, God was not unprepared. God had long ago made provisions for his son. Uh, This tomb of Jesus, which was a tomb of grief, would also be a tomb that was gifted. We see that as we read on here. We read that when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Though the women had no place prepared for Jesus, God had prepared a place for his son. In fact, it was a place prepared from ancient days. Long ago in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah wrote, By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living. He would be stricken for the transgression of my people. And they assigned his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah had prophesied that though they intended to make his grave with criminals, he would be buried with a rich man in his death. And here at this moment when he is cut off out of the land of the living, God moves upon the heart of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, to step forward, to step up to the plate and to ask for the body of Christ. Now we actually, we know very little about Joseph of Arimathea. In some ways, he exits the scene almost as quickly as he enters it. Outside of the four Gospels, his name is never mentioned again. But from the witness of the four Gospels, we know at least a few things about this faithful disciple of Christ. First, we know from the Gospels that he was a rich man. He was a man of wealth and influence, and he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin Council. So, for example, both Mark and Luke tell us of his wealth and that he was a respected member of the council. And if you're wondering and you're thinking to yourself, the Sanhedrin, you're right. That is the very same council that put Jesus on trial and found him guilty of blasphemy and that he was deserving of death. But Luke 23 includes this little comment about Joseph of Arimathea, that he was not consenting to that decision. The second thing we know about Joseph is that Luke tells us that he was a good and upright man who was waiting for the kingdom of God. 
That is to say that Joseph was among those faithful Israelites who were looking with anticipation for the anointed Messiah. They knew that it was the Messiah who would ultimately bring in the kingdom of God. And Joseph of Arimathea was waiting patiently for that coming kingdom and that coming king. He was a wealthy man of influence. He was a righteous man waiting for the kingdom of God. And the third thing we know about Joseph is that in Jesus, he believed he had found that king. Matthew tells us that he had been discipled to Jesus. I'm a little disappointed with the way the ESV translates the Greek New Testament here. Um, Matthew uses what's called an aorist passive. And I think there's something telling in that passive voice. Joseph did not disciple himself to Jesus. Rather, he was discipled to Jesus. God had brought him to his son. And while John agrees, John also adds this little other tidbit about Joseph. He tells us that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of the Jews. Now, if anyone was privy uh, to the mind of those religious elite, it was going to be Joseph. He had an inside view, right? He was part of the council itself, together with Nicodemus. He knew the kind of conversations that were happening among the members of the Sanhedrin. That means he would have known of their jealousy. He would have heard their hateful murmurings against Jesus. He may even have had knowledge of that secret meeting that took place in the palace of Caiaphas where they plotted and schemed to put Jesus to death. He understood the rancor and the resentment of his peers. And he also knew how much power and influence they had as a body, which means that he understood the threat. Which only makes the testimony of what he does all the more powerful. Luke tells us that he took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Now, I think it would be easy to criticize Joseph for being a secret disciple, for secretly hiding his true beliefs. It would be easy to be critical of his fear and call him a coward. But this is the moment where his faith is tested. This is the moment that his cowardice gives way to courage and his fear gives way to faith as he uses whatever privilege and influence he has to go to Pilate and to ask him for the body of Jesus. And make no mistake that in doing this, he is absolutely going on public record as a sympathizer, a lover, and a disciple of Jesus. This is a public act. It is as public as the decision of the Sanhedrin Council. And it is a public act that stands in direct contrast to the actions of his colleagues. It's a public act that stands in direct contrast to the disciples. It's not Peter there asking for the body. Peter, who vowed to be with him to the end, who, who even if he must die with him, would never deny him. 
Peter is off hiding with all of the other disciples. But this man who was in hiding in this moment steps forward. Joseph is the one who shows the true courage of his convictions. A Chesterton once wrote that courage is almost a contradiction in terms. Courage is almost a contradiction in terms because it is a strong conviction to live taking the form of a readiness to die. I want to live, but I'm ready to die. And that's exactly the stance that Joseph and Nicodemus are willing to take here at the end. To the chagrin of their peers, one commentator put it this way. He said, sometimes fear can be the first step toward faith. Faith is the antidote to fear. For perfect love casts out fear. And I I wonder, maybe some of you here today find yourself somewhere between fear and faith. Maybe you even find yourself being discipled to Christ. And yet you're still struggling to make that public stand. You're still struggling to go on record, still struggling to commit. Jesus said earlier in this gospel, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Let the courage of Joseph be a testimony to you to take your stand with Christ. To to have the courage of your convictions to acknowledge Jesus before men. And what does that acknowledgement of Jesus look like? What does this stand look like that he takes? In short, it looks like setting aside his fear and his desire for glory and his desire to be remembered in order that Jesus might be remembered. The Bible tells us that he went together with Nicodemus, another member of the council. Remember, Nicodemus is the man that Jesus had that conversation with. Nicodemus had come to him at night in the secrecy and in the dark and asking him uh, about what it means to be born again. That same Nicodemus would come to faith in Christ. That same Nicodemus would be the one who would personally provide all the spices for his anointing. Nicodemus provides the anointing spices. Joseph provides the tomb. And together they come. And and he took the body. Here the emphasis is on Joseph. He took the body and he wrapped it in a clean linen shroud. And he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had had cut in the rock and rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. I want you to just imagine the scene for a moment. Imagine these two men climbing up to Golgotha. Did they have to take the body down from the cross? Or had the Romans already torn the body of Christ down? Did they have to Remove the nails from his hands. Remove that crown of thorns that he wore. In any case, 
you can imagine that they must have been covered in the blood of Jesus. And simply the act of touching his dead body would have made them ceremonially unclean in the midst of the Passover celebration. But they no longer care about themselves. They care about Christ. And maybe the most beautiful picture of that is the tomb itself. The word that is used here for the tomb uh, is, is a word that we might translate memorial. It's the same Greek word that is actually behind our English word memorial. It was not just a simple headstone. This was a tomb commissioned by a man of wealth and influence. It was a tomb literally carved out of the rock, so large that the Gospels record that people are going in and out of the tomb. It was probably a tomb not just made for Joseph, but made for his whole family. It was basically this giant vault hewn out of the stone. It was a tomb that Joseph had taken pains to have prepared in advance in the event of his own death. If I should die, right? It was the sort of tomb that people would walk by in the garden and say, wow, I wonder who's buried there. Have you done that? Have you walked through a graveyard and you see the headstones, lines and rows and rows of headstones, and then in the distance you see one massive memorial with an iron gate around it. And you think, that must have been somebody important. That's the kind of tomb this was. It was a memorial. It was a tomb crafted for remembrance. It was, it was something that he had, had, had made so that his family name might be remembered. And yet, now he gives it in service to Christ. What a gift. Here, Joseph is no longer interested in his own glory, no longer interested in the remembrance of his name. He's interested in the remembrance of Christ. And yet, it's precisely because he puts Christ first, and because he seeks Christ should be remembered, that we remember him, that we're actually talking about him today. If he had not given this tomb, if he had not put Christ first, if he had not sought to make Christ's name remembered, we would not be talking about Joseph. And yet he, is, he may be one of the very few names on the Sanhedrin council that you know. Maybe you know Caiaphas, maybe you know Nicodemus, Maybe you know Joseph of Arimathea. In a way, it's sort of like the German reformer, Nicholas von Zinzendorf, who made it his motto in life, preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. If you know anything about Zinzendorf, you either know him for his famous hymn, Jesus, Thy Blood and Righteousness, or you know him for that motto, preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. And yet he's not forgotten. Precisely because he made it his aim to preach Christ and to see him glorified. In the providence of God, it's the very reason we remember him. So it is with Joseph of Arimathea. We remember him because he remembered Christ. 
Is that true of you? Is that true of me? What do we want? What do we hope for? Is it to make a name for ourselves? Is it so that we might be remembered? Or is it that whether by our life or by our death, Christ might be remembered, that Christ might be made known? And and let me just point out that even as Joseph takes the body of Jesus and he wraps it in these swaddling clothes, this linen shroud, and he lays, lays it in a tomb that has never been used, it's hard not to hear the echo of the birth of Jesus. There's an interesting symmetry here between the beginning of Jesus' life and the ending of his life. When he took on human flesh, he was laid in a virgin womb wrapped in swaddling clothes and trusted to the protection and provision of a man named Joseph who exits the scene as quickly as he enters it. And now, in that same human flesh, is laid to rest. It's laid in a virgin tomb, a tomb that has never been used, wrapped in swaddling clothes and entrusted to the provision and protection of another man named Joseph who exits the scene as soon as he enters it. And just as Mary was there at the beginning, a whole company of Marys are here at the end. John tells us that near the cross of Jesus did his mother Mary, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And then Matthew tells us that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary are there, sitting opposite the tomb. And so you have Joseph, and you have Mary, and you have a body wrapped in swaddling clothes, and you have it laid in a cave. I'm not sure what to, what to make of that, honestly. Uh, it, it's an interesting sort of symmetry. It seems hard for me to think that it's accidental. I think perhaps what we're meant to make of it is very simply this. That the Holy Spirit would remind us at the end that Jesus was born to die. You will call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This was the whole reason that he had been brought into the world to give his life as a ransom for many. And being buried in this virgin tomb with these echoes of the virgin womb, it seems to me a very fitting way of telling us that the purpose of his life had been fulfilled that all that he had come to do was accomplished. We've seen that it was a grieved tomb, and we've seen that it was a gifted tomb. Finally, let's remember that it was a guarded tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that this imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. What, the, what all the disciples seem to have forgotten as they are hiding in fear, the religious leaders now remember with perfect clarity. That imposter said, after three days, I will rise. They hated him in life, and they hate him in death. And so justifying their behavior as an act of righteousness and doing good They go to Pilate on the Sabbath and they ask him to order 
that the tomb be made secure until the third day. What are they afraid of here? What are they afraid of? Are they afraid that Jesus might actually rise from the dead? No, not at all. They don't believe that for a second. They've already charged him as a liar and an imposter. Their fear is not about what they think Jesus may do. He's as dead as a doornail. We've taken care of him. Their fear is about what they think the disciples might do. Not only do they paint Jesus as a liar and a fraud, they paint uh, the disciples as deceivers too. They suggest that the disciples, just because they're associated with Jesus, will come and try to steal away his and claim that he's risen from the dead. And so the last fraud, that is the fraud of the disciples, will be worse than the first fraud, the fraud of Jesus. And what does Pilate do? Once again, he appeases them. He says, you have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. So that's what they do. They, they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Not only do they place a guard of Roman soldiers before the tomb, but they take this added measure of sealing the stone. Uh, now, the sealing of the stone does not mean that the stone itself is sealing the tomb. That's true, right? We think of maybe sealing a mason jar or something with the lid. The tomb is sealed by the stone. And in that way, that massive stone would itself have been a deterrent. But the seal here refers to a Roman seal. A seal of authority. It would have been made of some sort of moldable material, either wax or likely clay. It would have been imprinted with the Roman seal, and then it would have been attached, uh, probably by a hemp rope, across the front of that stone that was sealing the tomb. The stone sealed the tomb, and the Roman seal sealed the stone. And the seal put everyone on notice that to break the seal and to enter this tomb was punishable by death. There would be no way to enter the tomb without breaking the seal. And to break the seal, to violate and trespass that Roman seal, would bring down the full wrath of the Roman Empire. And then, just to ensure the matter, they set up a guard in front of it. Scholars debate how many soldiers would have been present. There were different numbers of guards, 4, 16, 30. Most suggest that it was either the 4 or the 16. The point is that they're, they're, they're going to make it as impossible to get into this tomb as they can. And yet, ironically in doing everything they can to make the tomb as secure as possible, they unwittingly provide some of the best evidence for the resurrection. It would have been easy to make the story stick that the disciples stole the body if there was no seal, no guard, no nothing. J.C. Ryle writes this, they were unwittingly making it impossible to prove that there was any deception or imposition 
their seal, their guard, their precautions, were all to become witnesses in a few hours. They were taken in their own craftiness, and the very things that they put out to secure the tomb would prove that the disciples didn't steal the body. I'm itching to preach on the resurrection here. (laughs) And it would be easy to press forward and to immediately launch into the joy and glory of the resurrection, but I think we need to be careful not to do that. We're not there yet. We need to stop and just linger opposite the tomb with the women. We need to sit here for a while in the valley of the shadow of death. Because as horrific and as terrible as the suffering of the cross was, the lowest point of his humiliation is here at the tomb as he descends into the grave. I'm reminded of the Heidelberg Catechism, questions 40 and 41. Question 40 asks, Why was it necessary for Christ to suffer death? And the answer is this, because the justice and truth of God required that satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. You could not be forgiven of your sins. Satisfaction for your sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. And then it follows with question 41. Why was he buried? To show thereby that he was really dead. If satisfaction for your sins could be made in no other way than by the death of Jesus, burial is the proof that he was dead. It is his burial that proves that that satisfaction for sins has been made. It completes the humiliation. The resurrection is coming, and we want it to come, but we need to remember that without the burial, the resurrection is meaningless because the wages of sin is death. So as we sit here beside the tomb... What do we learn from the burial of Jesus, and particularly from those who are present there? Well, I think we can learn something important from these women. I think the Holy Spirit would have us to reflect on their steadfast love and loyalty to Jesus. As they ministered to him in life, so they would minister to him in death. There were a thousand things that they could not do. But there was this one thing that they could do. They could be there. Who is going to be beside your bed in the hospital when you die? Who is going to be there with you to hold your hand? When everyone else had run away, they were the faithful few. Those to sit and grieve in silence. Those who would prepare the spices. Sometimes we agonize about all the things that we cannot do for Christ. When we might be, when it might be that we should just be asking, what can we do? 
Don't agonize about what you cannot do, what is not in your power to do. Just do what is in your hand. Do what is in your power. As uneventful and as routine as it might seem. And sometimes that means just being present. To give glory to God, to give comfort to the saints. And you know, I think that as you do that, God is pleased to honor those who honor him in this way. It is not accidental that these are the same women that have the privilege of becoming the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. It's not the disciples. They are the ones who get to go and tell the disciples. Jesus chooses them. Secondly, I think we might learn from the gift of Joseph that God is pleased to sovereignly make disciples for his son, even from those who are afraid, even from those who have been cowards. He is the one who causes fear to give way to faith. He is the one who causes cowardice to rise into courage. He's the one who takes us and makes us into the kind of people who will be more concerned with the name of Christ and his reputation and his remembrance than with our own. May God be pleased to shape us into such servants of Christ. I pray that courage would even now begin to rise in your heart, that you would acknowledge Jesus before men. And third and finally, I think we're meant to learn that Jesus did not merely swoon or faint on the cross, only to be revived later, but that he really and truly died. That his spirit, which once animated his earthly body, giving it life and vitality, was returned to the Father at the cross, and his body was returned to the ground. And that because he really and truly died, we can know that death and nothing short of death is being conquered for us. His death is the proof that the satisfaction for sin was being made. The wages of sin is death. And as long as Jesus lies under the power of death, he is proving that that payment is being made. You know, it is nothing short of amazing that when Jesus died, and that necessary question that comes to us all was raised. That question, what should be done with his body? What should be done with the body of my loved one? What is so wonderful is that the Father answered that question, that his body should return to the ground. He did not immediately raise him up. He did not immediately have him ascend from the cross. The Father's answer to that question was that he should be buried like every other son and daughter of Adam. It overwhelms me. But that was the Father's answer. My friends, the resurrection is coming. 
we know the end of the story, but I pray that today as you reflect on God's word, let me just encourage you to sit here with death. To sit at the tomb and let the reality of the curse of sin, that horrible, unnatural enemy of death, weigh upon you. It's sadness. It's heartache. It's loneliness. It's curse. The abrupt end that it brings to all earthly relationships as you are cut off from the land of the living. Let that valley of the shadow of death grow dark. And even as that valley of the shadow of death grows in your heart and mind, allow your heart to be filled with wonder at the one who is laid there in death for you, who remains under the power of death for you, because in his death is the death of death. But do remember that the story does not end in the valley of the shadow of death. It ends in the house of the Lord forevermore. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this account of our Savior's life and of his death for us. Lord, we thank you for the witness of those who were there. We thank you for the steadfast love and loyalty of these women. Lord, we thank you for raising up and putting it upon the heart of Joseph of Arimathea to provide a place for him in death. We thank you for the courage of his conviction and the way that we see his fear give way to faith. And we pray that you would work these same things in our own heart. And Lord, even as we contemplate the mystery of the gospel, we are overwhelmed by the profound realization that you would have your son in the body committed to the ground, that we might know that here death is being triumphed over. And so, Lord, we pray that you would cause faith to rise up in us and that you would make us to entrust our whole selves to Jesus Christ, to the remembrance of his name and not of ours. And so we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. And as you're seated, you know that now you are seated at the Lord's Supper, this meal which Jesus actually gave to his disciples in order to help prepare them for his death. Uh, This is one of the things that he did to make them ready for what was coming. In spite of that, they were not ready. They had no idea what was going to unfold. But we do. The Lord is pleased to help us to understand this meal. On the same night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He also took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you, in remembrance of me. And so as we come to this meal, this meal itself, like the tomb, is a memorial. We do this in remembrance 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this meal is so much more than a memorial. It is not just the memory of Christ. It is a participation with Christ. Christ is here with us. He is the one who gives us these elements to take and receive. We participate in this, and so we have communion with Him, and we have communion with one another. We have fellowship. And so as we come to this meal today, and as we receive these elements from the Lord, let's do it in remembrance of Him, but also with the knowledge that He is with us, no longer in the grave, but ascended on high, sitting at the right hand of His Father in glory. And He will come again to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. And if you're here today and you know Christ, if you belong to Him, if you are trusting in Him, if you've been baptized into His name and are a member of a church where the gospel is faithfully being preached, then you're welcome to come and to join us in this meal and to find that your faith will rise and your courage will rise. But if you, if you know that you do not belong to Christ, if you're not walking in faith and repentance with Him, let me just ask that you would let these elements pass you by. But I would also encourage you not to let Christ pass you by today. He is here to be received by faith. And if you want to know more of what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be made His disciple, there's nothing I'd like to talk to you about more than that. And I'd be happy to speak with you after the service. But, but all of us today, as we come to this meal, let's do it in remembrance of Him. Let's pray that the Lord would take these ordinary elements now and set them apart for this holy use. Lord Jesus, as we come to this table, this banqueting table that you have set before us, Lord, we are mindful that you did this to prepare us for your coming death. That we would remember the way that you have given your life for us. The way that you have tasted our sadness and our sorrows and even taken that last enemy, the curse of death upon yourself and were laid low in the grave. And these signs themselves are signs of judgment witnessing to that. It, it pictures your body torn to pieces as we receive just a fragment of this bread, we receive your body broken. And that wine pictures your blood shed and poured out. And as we receive it and as we drink it, we participate with you in your death and in your resurrection. Lord, we pray then that as we receive these elements with faith, that you would grant that all of the grace that is signified in these elements would be made truly and really ours even today, that we might rest with confidence in your grace. And so we, we ask all of these things then in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.